0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark, chapter 1. Now, beginnings have such importance. The beginning of a book will determine if you finish the book. It'll determine whether you get to chapter 2. The start of a movie. Within the first 10 minutes, if it loses, you might turn it off. The beginning is very Important. It tells you whether you should be interested or not interested, hooked or not hooked. Now, Mark, in the beginning of his gospel, cuts right to the chase. He's speaking to Roman citizens, likely Gentile uh, believers or unbelievers. He is cutting right to the heart of it. He begins this book by saying, The beginning of the gospel. And he skipped over. The genealogy, skipped over the birth account, uh, the temple account of Jesus when he was a boy, and he skips right to John the Baptist. He starts by showing exactly what God has said and what God has fulfilled, and now he begins to unpack the promise of God unfolding Here in Mark chapter 1, we read, beginning at verse 1, read with me. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth, Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is the way Mark starts what he calls the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news of Jesus. In here, it is implied that he came. And in here also, where he came from, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And then he goes immediately to pointing backwards. He doesn't do this often. Uh, Mark is the, the, one of the gospel accounts that least points to Old Testament scriptures because he's not appealing to a Jewish audience. So he's not going to appeal to their scriptures very often. But what he does is set the stage. He's saying, what you're seeing unfolds, what you see in this good news is a promise of God being fulfilled. And it starts with a man named John. John, this wild man, starts with him, who is a prophet-like, which is so interesting because even for the people of Israel, God had been silent. God used to speak often through prophets, right? He'd send men, and he'd speak through them, and they would recognize that that's a prophet from God, and this is a word from God, and we can hear from God through this man. Now, prior to this, it had been silent. For a long time, four hundred years of silence. And now enters John, prophet like just declaring what was in front of him. And so Mark in his account is saying, This is fulfilling what is said. And so interestingly enough, they wondered, Well, what is John? What is he? Is he is he Elijah? Because he was very Elijah. Like. And so here he declares that uh, verse 2 as is written in Isaiah the prophet, uh, behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And so he's declaring that John himself has come to prepare the way for the people to receive Jesus. Interestingly enough, the way that they're to receive Jesus in John, what he was doing was confessing of sin, turning from their sin toward God. That's what he was doing He was just giving these people an outward expression of their repentance and their belief and their trust in God. Them wanting to turn from selfishness, turn from their sin, turn from worldliness, and turn to following God. And they were doing that through showing in baptism. Baptism in the river, where they were dunked and brought back up. As in, they have died to self and they are a new creation. They've come up from the grave. And it's interesting because... John didn't necessarily know what was going to happen with Jesus. He he just felt compelled by God to go and to do this thing. But yet he was preparing the way for the way of forgiveness and the way of uh, true repentance where people should turn. Interestingly, it says there in verse 4, so John appeared and he was baptizing in the wilderness. So you'll notice that word, A wilderness was in verse 3 in the prophecy. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And then all of a sudden, John appeared in the wilderness. And what was he doing? It says, number one, he was baptizing. And number two, he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is not just getting caught in your sin and feeling bad for it. Repentance is not just saying sorry when someone says you've done something wrong. Repentance is when God has convicted your heart and you realize you've offended God. And you turn from that. And you turn to Him. A, a, ba- a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it says, interestingly enough, that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. So people from the countryside, people from the urban areas were going out and they were wanting forgiveness for their sins. It's interesting how this gospel starts, isn't it? That there are people who are longing to be forgiven for sins. That's the beginning of the good news. Sinful people. Sinful people confessing their sins. They have lives that are burdened, hearts that are torn with sin. This is the beginning of the good news. Sin is true. Sin is impactful. But sin is not ultimate. Sin can be confessed and repented of, turned from. And so the beginning of the good news is hearts that are convicted and seeking a way to be made right with God. Hearts that say, I want to turn from this that has let me down repeatedly. I'm I'm done with this. I'm sick of this. And I want God. That's what repentance is. Turning from what does not work to God. That's the beginning of the gospel. And it's this announcement, this proclamation of this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But it's true repentance that counts it's not just an outward expression or or you know oh well everyone's doing it from town so i'm just going to go with them and i'm going to do this thing oftentimes you'll see that maybe if if kids are like seeking baptism or teenagers oh the whole youth group's doing it everybody just goes and gets baptized and yeah but there's something about deep and true repentance there's a difference between uh saying you're sorry because you're caught Having your heart wrenched because of sin against God. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief produces repentance. Turning. Turning. Action. Evidence. That's what godly grief produces is true repentance that leads to salvation because it's pursuing christ and not just a system which is going to let you down again and again that is the external system of the law stop doing this start doing this clean up your act uh you know all the external things that you can do to make yourself feel better is not true repentance True repentance is, is leading to salvation. It is leading to you throwing yourself fully on him for the forgiveness of your sins. That's godly grief that produces true repentance. Amazing, in, uh, in Matthew's account of John the Baptist here, he goes into further detail. You'll, you'll note Mark is so summary version of everything. But in Matthew's account, uh, he says in Matthew chapter 3... Um, when John the Baptist was there and he was, he was uh, doing all these baptisms, he saw, it says in Matthew 3, verse 7, he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious uh, Israel, uh, Jews, right? Many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming out to his baptism. And he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He says, and do not presume to say to yourself, well, we have Abraham as our father. He says, don't presume your, your family heritage. Don't presume that you're just good with God because of your family or some external law keeping. Don't presume that. He says, for I tell you, God is able to take from these stones and raise up children for Abraham. Your family heritage doesn't matter here, is what he says. It says, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So he's saying, again, even John, recognizing there, is saying, you might come out you might want to put on a show. Because that's what the Pharisees are known for, right? Well, whatever looks the most religious at the time, they're going to do it and they're going to do it in style. So were they coming out just to, yeah, take part in this repentance and look at us. We love God and we're the most holy men. And he right away saw right through them. Like any prophet of God would, he saw right through them and he called them a brood of vipers. He cut right to them, to their heart, and he says, What you ought to do is bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is not fruit. This one time act of you showing off, we don't know if there's going to be any fruit of this. He says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you're coming out today and you're going to express your faith that you need God alone, that there better be fruit. He said. And then he gives that warning because the ax is out and it's chopping away at roots. And if there's no, tr- no fruit on that tree, you're, you're going to be revealed that it doesn't matter whether you're a son of Abraham or not. At the end of the day, this is a, 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 an expression of true repentance, true grief towards your sin. And you see that here in verse 5 in Mark, where it says exactly what they were doing. They were coming out, and they were being baptized by him in the River Jordan. They were confessing their sins. They were confessing. Do you think the Pharisees would have done that? No. No, they maybe confess. What would they confess? If they're so holy, what do they have to confess, right? Oh, I'm sorry I was late to the party. Forgive me. They're Pharisees. But the people who wanted to be baptized, who wanted to express their faith in God through this uh, method, were confessing their sins. They were laying it bare. This is part of the fruit of repentance. The fruit of godly grief is, is bearing it all and saying, this is what I've done. Take me as I am, God. This is what I have. Nothing but filth. And the beauty of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that we bring our filth before Christ and He doesn't turn us away. But we also can bring our filth and admit it before one another. And say, Yeah, I'm filthy. But Christ has not turned me away. And and I I I'm trusting in, I'm relying on, and I am believing in faith that this filth is forgiven. So would you help me to process? Would you help me to move through it? Would you help me rather than judge me? Would you walk alongside me? As I'm confessing this to you, would you walk with me? Too many times people say about the church, is just full of judgmental people, right? Uh, Hypocrites, people who will point out your own sin but pretending like they got none of their own. Well, we know 1 John says that if you say that you don't have sin, you're a liar. And so the, the safest place to admit it is before Christ and his people and say, I got filth. I have temptations. I have sin. Stuff that I'm dealing with and it's wrecking my heart. And I want to confess my sin because I want forgiveness of my sin. And I want to be reminded that it's forgiven. How lonely would it be for a person to go through life with the weight of their sin, thinking that they are the only ones who can remind themselves, it's forgiven, it's forgiven. It's forgiven. How sad is that? That's not the way God designed his people. God designed his people to be that place where sinners are amongst, where Jesus himself, as you see his life, he welcomed the sinners. He brought them near and he said, I didn't come for the righteous, those who wouldn't say they're sick or those who say they wouldn't have sin. He said, I came for those who admit it. And that's who should come to us to be able to come and say, I have this filth and and I need your help. I need you to remind me that it's forgiven. I need you to remind me that there is grace that's new every morning. Confessing sins is the beginning of the gospel. You cannot come to the good news of Jesus, of this bearing fruit of true repentance, unless you confess your sins. Unless you have come and said, I am unworthy. And these sins that I commit in my heart, with my actions, with my life, that I have committed that haunt me, that I do commit, that I am going to commit. These sins are not just wrong in the world and have consequences here, but they're against God. As David admitted, and as, as David was broken over King David, he says, against you and you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. When he was broken over his sin with Bathsheba, he comes to God and he says, it was against you, God, I sinned. Yes, he sinned against Bathsheba and her family. He sinned against the people, the people he lied to, the people he abused and used in that situation. But at the end of the day, he sinned against God who said no. He trespassed. When God said no, he crossed that line. So he admitted he confessed his sin to him. That's what is the beginning of the gospel is the confession of sin, a place where we can come and and lay it all before the other people of God. Confession, that's, that is one thing I think that the Roman Catholic Church uh, encourages that I think is good. is confession to a, another human being. That guy in the booth cannot forgive sins. And that guy in the booth is full of sin too. But the practice of confessing your sin out loud to another person is very important. James tells us to do it. Confess your sins one to another, it says. And, and the, the reason that's important is because it exposes the beast. What does uh, Jesus say? That men love the darkness because we don't want to be exposed. Well, the gospel exposes it and says, that's okay. Not that sin's okay, but that that it's okay to be broken because I'm for broken people. I'm here to heal them and mend them. I'm here to welcome them and to transform them. It's all about transformation. And that's even what baptism, as we celebrate baptism, represents, is the absolute transformation that God has done in us. I once was alive in my sin and in my selfishness, following my own ways, but I have died. I have died with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. And the life I now live is no longer I who lives it, but Christ who lives in me. That's baptism. That's why we celebrate, like John the Baptist here, through immersion. It is this great visible picture of once alive, dead in Christ, but resurrected, new, washed, fresh clean start. New creation. And this is what John came preaching, was repentance, forgiveness. They came out confessing their sins to this wild man. Wild man. Look at him in verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. They weren't going out to him because he was popular and beautiful. They were led there by God. To go and confess their sins. And he didn't just say, Well, yeah, come to me. I'm special. Or I have this special trick you can try. Instead, look at verse 7. He preached Jesus. He preached Jesus. Incredibly. It says there, specifically, verse 7. And he preached, saying, After me comes one mightier than I, The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. That's an incredible statement because even a slave in that time wouldn't untie the sandals of another person. Like that's how low it is. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do that job to to, to this Messiah who's coming, to Jesus. I'm not even worthy to do the job that no one does. Uh, That would be an honor to untie his sandal straps. That's how worthy this one is who is coming. And then he says in verse 8, So I have baptized you with water. But he, this one who is coming, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Incredibly. We are only eight verses into this this gospel account. And we already have the Father shown in verse 1. Because Jesus is the Son. So the Son has a Father. And then here, in verse 8 already, the Holy Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Interestingly enough, uh, there is a a group of Christians, the Pentecostals. I I love them, but I think they're wrong in one position of their understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, They think that that is only evidenced in speaking in tongues. So then if you don't speak in tongues, you're clearly not baptized with the Spirit. That's not what Scripture tells us the baptism of the Spirit is. Here, uh, the Holy Spirit will baptize. And it's the same idea, is you are saturated with, and you are dunked in, you are cleansed by the Holy Spirit. Pentecostals believe the evidence that that has happened to you is that you will speak in tongues. You will speak in um, foreign sounds to humans. But that's not so. And they get that from Peter and, and the early accounts of that, where... It sounded like gibberish to him because it was a different language. In the early accounts in Acts, we have them speaking in tongues, but it was, they could hear. So it would have maybe sounded like gibberish coming out of Peter's mouth, but it was everyone understood in their own language. It was language, but it was foreign to Peter that was speaking in tongues. But anyways, here, he, John's saying, I've done it with water. I, I've only done it with water. And that's maybe only external. Some of those people being baptized that day in the River Jordan would have only been an external act. you know how many people still go today to the Jordan River and are baptized? Every two years if they want. Just, oh man, oh yeah, it's such a holy experience. Oh, was it? What was it? You were just doing it to do it. Like it sounds like a cool experience to be baptized in the Jordan River, but what does it do? It does nothing if your heart is not repentant. If your heart is not confessing, you can be baptized a hundred times over and just come up with clean hair. Here he says, I've baptized you with water, something external that is representing what Christ will come to do. That he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Where the Spirit comes and transforms a person. Uh, Peter, when recalling an account where he went to Caesarea, and he's now back in Jerusalem, and he's talking to these Jewish leaders who are kind of questioning where he's going. and, And he's saying to them, this is after where... Uh, The sheet has come down, and Peter now realizes the Gentiles are welcome. And, and, And all that God says is clean, including the Gentiles, are welcome in the family. So he goes to this Gentile place and preaches to them and sees God work among them. And he's come back to Jerusalem to report even the Gentiles are being transformed by God. This is amazing. And so he's accounting this in Jerusalem. And he says in Acts chapter 11, he says, And as I began to speak, speaking of when he was with the Gentiles, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us in the beginning. He says, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, If then God gave that same gift to them that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who, who was I to stand in God's way? When we heard these things, Uh, When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. These these leaders, these Jewish leaders, in Christians, hearing Peter's account of what had happened among these Gentiles, said, Oh, so the spirit's fallen on them. Okay, that means God has granted them repentance that will lead to eternal life. That's the good news the Spirit comes and baptizes us, dunks us, saturates us fully and wholly so that they are new. And it says that leads to repentance, which leads to life. And obviously that means life eternal. And this reflects exactly what God said in Ezekiel. Well, God made a promise. He says this in Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you. And I will cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. I, God says, will put my spirit within you. And that's going to transform your heart from a stony heart, unresponsive to God's love, unresponsive to other people, to a heart of flesh. That's what it is to be baptized by the Spirit, to have a heart transformed by God. In Titus chapter 3, it describes in the same way. It says, When the goodness and the loving kindness of God appeared, Jesus, he saved us. Not because of works done in us by righteousness, but by his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He says, The Holy Spirit renewed us, washed us, that we might be new. And that's the incredible thing. It's exactly what John anticipates is coming with Jesus. When Jesus comes, he will baptize you, he says, with the Holy Spirit. And then verse 8 Oh, sorry, verse 9, we have Jesus entering. Jesus entering as a character, as a person in the story for the first time. Not just uh, introductory where this is the gospel of Jesus, but now entering in. It says, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So... This is such a summary version, and we know that, right? The other gospel accounts have like this back and forth between John and Jesus. But you'll notice something interesting, and a question that might come to your mind is all the others who came out, it says that they were confessing their sins. And they were coming out, it says, uh, verse 5, right? They were coming out confessing their sins. And and verse 4, it was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, but then Enter Jesus, and it says, and he was baptized. It wasn't confessing his sins. It wasn't for the forgiveness of his sins, because he was indeed without sins. Interesting, too, is in any of the gospel accounts, we're not told why Jesus was baptized. Because it wasn't for forgiveness. It wasn't to confess his sins. He had none. But instead, it was the inauguration of his ministry, bearing your sin and my sin. The inauguration of a new creation, a new washing, a new way of obedience. In Matthew, Jesus, in his account uh, with John, when John says, no, 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 I, you, I shouldn't be baptizing you, you should be baptizing me. Jesus said to him, uh, let it be so now, and thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So he just said, this is a way of obedience. We must do it. So let's do it. So then John consented and he baptized him. And as he baptized him in the Jordan, verse 10 then says, and he came up out of the water and he immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Interesting. So, Uh, This, even here, verse 10, gives us an indication of the mode of baptism. He was dunked. He was coming up out of the water from the river. But what he saw was incredible. He saw the heavens, the sky, being torn open. Torn open. Torn open, which is, it it doesn't just say opened up. It says torn, which is, it, it, it kind of points to this passage in Isaiah 64, where Isaiah is just crying out to God. And he says this, Isaiah 64, 1, he says, If only you would tear the heavens open and come down, so the mountains would quake at your presence. Incredible. Isaiah was saying, if only you would just tear open the heavens and come down, then... They would quake at your presence. The the mountains would quake. like They would tremble. They would see you. They would know you. If you would just tear open the heavens. And here, as Jesus comes up out of the water, the heavens are torn open. And the Spirit comes down. And guess what quakes? The mountains. Of course, we know the mountains quake at Jesus' death. It's incredible to think how this kind of reflects what Isaiah said, like, if this would just happen, if you would just do this thing. What's interesting, here it says, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the the one person of the, the Godhead, the Spirit descending on him. Now, you maybe picture a dove. Do you picture a dove? Most of us picture a dove. Most artwork represents a dove when it thinks of this scene. But was it a dove? Read the text. And he saw the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Like a dove. Not in the form of a dove. Not as a dove. But like a dove. I can run like a cheetah. Doesn't mean I look like a cheetah. It means I'm fast. So what does it mean then that the spirit descended on him like a dove? It was graceful. It didn't dive like an eagle in an attack. It was hovering like a dove. Why this imagery and why have we so taken on this picture of a dove? It's because we know that it's representative of this passage and it reminds us of this. But it's not there. What's there is this likeness of a dove only in Luke does it even mention that there was a bodily form here where it says and the whole in Luke says and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove but descended on him in bodily form or was the dissension in bodily form we don't know but we know it wasn't a dove it was like a dove What's important is the text is not what it looked like, not what it even sounded like, but it was who he was. That was the importance. Who Jesus was and who the Spirit was as a person. Sometimes we forget that the Spirit is a person. Like Jesus is a person, like the Father is a person. What is meant by the Spirit descending What is meant by this hovering of the Spirit over Jesus? It reminds me of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where it says, The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so that inaugurated the creation of the world. The formation, the transformation of this void taken now to be with form. And now we have the Spirit hovering over Jesus, inaugurating a new creation. Not in a world, but in mankind. The Spirit descended on him, showing the transformation was to happen. And, And it's precisely What John alluded to in saying he was going to baptize you, he's going to wash you, he's going to dunk you, he's going to change you by the Spirit. And now the Spirit descends on Jesus, inaugurating, beginning this mission that he had. Why he was sent into the world to perform all that he did, to live in righteousness as he did, to die and to live again as he did. And then, verse 11, a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. It's so amazing to see in these two verses the triune God. Father, Son, and Spirit together. Together. This is corrective for us sometimes in our thinking. If we have ever thought of like, okay, because there's this thing called modalism, where people think that God kind of existed in modes. He was the Father, and then he came down as the Son, and then he is now present as the Spirit, and that's how God exists. But here we see simultaneously the Father, the Spirit, and the Son together in a a moment. They were not separate. Like, oh, Jesus was there and all of a sudden flaked out, and then it was the Spirit and flaked out, and then they're God speaking. This is corrective For us. And it's just a good reminder to us of the unity of God. The unity of God. God dwelling together in perfect unity in this mission that He would be pleased with His Son. And it's interesting because in the original language here, our version says, I I am well pleased with you. Uh, It's actually written in the past tense, but it carries this weight of of eternality, like it's infinite, Like I am always pleased with you and I will always be pleased with you and I have been pleased with you. Uh, in the Greek, it's past tense, which is good too because it shows us that Jesus preexisted, that Jesus did not just enter into this moment and, and this is why God's now pleased with him because he's done the right thing and he obeyed in baptism. Uh, the original language says that I was pleased with you. And really holds this weight of, I am, present tense, pleased with you very well, pleased with you. Because you are my beloved son. That's why. Not because you have done this thing. Not because of the display that you've put on. Not because the Spirit has come on you. But because you're my son. My beloved son. And with you, I am well pleased. The whole Godhead was there. And this is the beginning of the good news. Sinners recognizing their their plight. Recognizing their distance between them and God. Seeking a way to be made right to turn from from this world and to turn to living faith in God. And then Jesus coming. And God affirming and the Spirit descending. All there is the beginning of the good news that this has come for sinners. Amazingly, this passage, although it alludes to uh, baptism itself. Uh, obedience in baptism. The mode of baptism. It's not what the text is about. It's not about John. It's not about baptism. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. And the Father. And the Spirit. All being one. And being one together. This These few verses packs in so much. The gospel, it mentions. Scripture fulfilled. Repentance. Forgiveness of sins. Preaching of this great Jesus. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Obedience of Jesus, Holy Spirit, and the Father. There's so much in these few verses. What do we walk away with? What do we take away from a text like this other than knowledge or other than just thinking about the dove that wasn't what do we what do we take away from a passage like this well who is christ who is jesus who is he but god who is he but the one who was sent on our behalf who is he but the uh, the lamb of god as john describes in john the lamb of god Behold the lamb. Here he is. He has come and his ministry has begun. So to that, just like with um, John the Baptist, we look and say, he is mightier than I. But he is not so far from me that I can't come to him and confess my sins. He is not so distant from me that I can uh, not receive forgiveness for my sins. But instead, he made it deep. He took those very things of confession, repentance, acts of obedience, and he instilled them deep in my heart through the Holy Spirit. So that's what we look at here. And we live lives then of wanting to obey but also just submitting ourselves to what the Spirit is at work doing. See that in John? He was led out, doing something that he felt called by by God to do, even though it was unpopular and it was sacrificial. He did it. And then Christ came obeying, he says, to fulfill the law, to, to please God. And God indeed says, I'm pleased with you. So that we look to Christ as the one who has come and who has welcomed us. And in that, we want to be transformed by this Spirit. We want not only to have in our head this knowledge of what is the Holy Spirit. What is it to be baptized by the Spirit? But, but what is it? I, I want to be that. I don't just want to understand it in my head. I want Jesus to do that in me. I want to be saturated by the Spirit today. I want him to to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I want him to transform my hard heart. I want him to soak me in his love and in his presence. And we have that. We have that. For those who have confessed Christ as their Savior, we have it. Often we forget it. Often we are grieving the Spirit in our sin or we are pushing him away because he's poking us in our guilt. But we have it. We have the spirit of God in us. And so then let us draw near to him. Ask him to wash us afresh. To make us obedient. To, to, to kill our old man again and again and again. And dunk us afresh in the spirit of God. And raise us a new, transformed day in and day out. May Christ do that in you and in me. For the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, you are incredible that we who have sinned against you have an opportunity to come to you, to draw near to you, to be made new by you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Christ coming into this world and and obeying. Thank you for him uh, loving us in such a way that he would sacrifice and serve us in this way. May we be people who are aware of the Spirit in our lives, aware of His prompting, aware of His um, uh, leading us and teaching us and guiding us and correcting us and training us. Maybe we aware of that, but at the same time, aware that the Spirit is at work in others around us too, that we may confess our sins, that we may ask for help, call for backup. We thank you so much that this is the way of salvation. Confession, turning from our sins, admitting it, and fleeing from our sin to you. Thank you that there is forgiveness in Christ. May we be aware of it and transformed by it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.